Welcome to the Digital From Day One podcast. Our aim is to build a bridge by creating content that will pique interest, spark conversations, and encourage further innovations that will ultimately build a more informed and prepared pipeline of learners headed for the 21st century workforce. Hi, my name is Brendan Dickerson, and joining me as always is Joel Nelson. Today, you'll be listening to our part two discussion with Dr. Theodore Chow, who is an associate professor of mathematics education and teaching and learnings science, technology, engineering, and mathematics program at the Ohio State University. So one thing that you come to learn um, that you're also a co-producer uh, for the radical, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 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 for the radical cram school, and which is you know a web series that seeks to keep you know girls of color from internalizing you know racist rhetoric and empower yeah. them to you know embrace their identities and become allies of other social movements. Can you like go into a little bit more detail on that web series and you know the idea and, and how you came up with the idea and some of the different conclusions that you've had so far with it? Yeah, I'm happy to. So you know, <laughs> part of the fun, right, of, <laughs> of of doing all this work is making your own content, right? And so, Radical Cram School is a really cool series. I made it with uh, Christina Wong, Janessa Jaffe, Anna Michelle Wong, and my daughter <laughs> and a lot of her friends. Um, it really came about, you know, like living in Ohio, right? So. Just to just let you all know, my, my family actually is from Ohio. When my granduncle came to the United States back in the 50s, right, from China, they settled in Springfield, Ohio. So my family, we, we joke around that we were probably the only Chinese family in the 50s in Springfield, Ohio, for you know, probably a, three, <laughs> a two or three hundred mile radius. But since then, you know, a lot, a lot, you know as, as the family's grown, as more and more people yeah. have, have come over, right, we had a lot of people in Ohio uh, from my family. And so whenever I would see, like growing up, whenever I would see uncles and aunts and other people, you know, they tell, oh, I live in Ohio. I live in Zanesville. I live in Springfield. I live in Columbus. You know, I live in Canton. Right. In my mind, I thought, you know, like Ohio's got a lot of Chinese people, right? And then when I moved here, right, to be a professor, I'm like, oh, oh, it's just my family that was the Chinese people. And, you know, Columbus, Ohio, and I think Ohio in general is changing rapidly. In fact, you know, yeah. there's, there's probably a lot more, a lot more diversity than there ever is, has ever been. And it's pretty amazing. But, you know, for my kids, right, they go to schools in which there are not a lot of people that look like them. And so when, I remember one time my daughter came home saying, you know, daddy, sometimes I wish I wasn't Chinese. You know, for the work that I do in equity and social justice, and I, you know, I immediately knew what she meant. I said, you know, I get it, right? I, I get that the, the pressures to assimilate, the feelings that sometimes you just want to fit in, you don't want to always stand out, you don't always want to be seen, right, with your, what we call the single story or just with like, you know, your outward identity. You don't want that to be your defining characteristics that people judge you want and constantly you know, look at you for, right? I get it. And so we had a really good conversation. I said, you know, let's, I've raised my kids with a lot of the sort of Asian American and ethnic studies work. And I said, why don't we have an opportunity for maybe you and some of your other friends, right, who are Asian American or, you know, just other kids of color so we can have these conversations, especially if we, if we know that sometimes they might try to have these conversations at home and, they, and their parents might also struggle with it because they're also dealing with many of the questions they feel with, right? Mm -hmm. um, so I, I reached out to Christina Wong, who's an amazing comedian and performance artist in California. And I said, why don't, we, why, don't we, why don't we put together like a town hall meeting or something just to have kids and we can record it, we can put it on YouTube and it'll be, hopefully it'll be a good resource. Particularly this was 2016. This was during the rhetoric going on in the 2016 election in which I knew a lot of children were hearing things that were really hurtful and they needed a space to, to, to be able to process that. Christina said, your town hall idea sucks. Let's make a web series that's actually fun for kids to watch. <laughs> 
And so we did it. We, we decided that we, should, we, we needed to make something fun. Our, our tagline was, and this is actually came from one of our reviews, is it's called Sesame Street for the Resistance. We have puppets, we have songs, we have a lot of fun. And we take a lot of the lessons that I build sometimes in my class, you know, lessons that we sometimes, you know, work with undergraduates to talk about things like intersectionality, microaggressions, right? You know, just uh, mis misogyny. And then in ways that are fun and accessible for kids and really listening to the way kids are processing some of these ideas. And so every episode is, you know, between three and five minutes. It's been really fun to put them online and just to, and, and just to really have a space for children to see these things and then sometimes for the, for the parents and the caregivers to watch them with the kids and then to embrace into a real conversation about what these things mean and how do you do it? You know, and, 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 and how do you have these conversations with other kids? It, you know, it's, it's been a trip. Like I, I would say that that work, the Radical Crown School work has been one of the most fun things that I've done. And yet, you know, compared to the work that I do as a professor, it's completely different. So can you also just talk a little bit more about how, I guess, COVID is also impacting that work as well, too? Mm -hmm. uh, so, mm -hmm. so I'm assuming, you know, before this, you know, you guys are all in a studio, not a studio, but, you know, you all were, you know, probably a little bit more closer working together um, on different uh, scripts and, and, and doing different uh, things in the web series. Mm -hmm. But I'm assuming things have now started to move virtually. So how, how has that impacted, you know, the production with, with the web series? Yeah, so we did we did two two seasons. Each season took us about a year to do, and so and we we crowdfunded for for the first two seasons. So we were able to pull in you know we, from really amazing supporters and fans, we were able to pull in a lot of money for the first season and the second season. The third season is sort of up in the air, and you're absolutely right. I think it's the fact that you know do we want to crowdfund another one? Do we want to see if we can get someone else to pay for it? And also just, you know, sort of work stoppage in general, right, um, in, in, in multiple industries. And this one, you know, like we were able to hire, you know, real camera people, real sound people, you know, directly from, from, from the industry to, to work on our, our stuff. Many of them, you know, are in, in very different spaces right now, right, in terms of the, you know, their ability to work, their, you know, even where they are. It's hard, right? I, I think that, you know, what we're finding with COVID is it, it impacts everything in so many ways you know here at ohio state i think we're lucky being part of a, a large university that is heavily affected but has an infrastructure in which because of our size we're able to absorb a, a, a lot of a lot of really negative consequences right mm -hmm. with radical cram school and even some of my my research you know asking kids to sort of, sort of have fun and be online together right it's it's harder now because kids are, are fatigued from all their online school right you know, getting parents to come together to like, you know, to, to, to meet for, you know, a, so, a, a social justice oriented sort of event, right? It's not going to happen, right? Mm -hmm. It's it's challenging. But, you know, I, I will say on the flip side, you know, Radical Cram School and, and this sort of work has been really amazing during this time because, you know, there's so many teachers, there's so many people that I've encountered that are just can you, can, I just need to find something. I just need to find some level of content that I can put on my Google, Google Classroom page or I can give to parents mm -hmm. and the students can watch it on their own, right? Particularly our students who don't have broadband who might be accessing the internet from their parents' phone or from a device and, and, they, and they, might, you know, they might be sharing one device during the day that they don't have mm -hmm. to do it while we meet in class, mm -hmm. but they can do it on their own over the weekend and they can binge watch these things or you know, engage with it and then when we get back together, we can have a conversation or they can leave their comments directly onto you know, a, a document. Like that sort of content I find to be really valuable today, right? Mm -hmm. Things that are, you, know, you can learn from that are 
fun, that are engaging, that are based on realistic ways of really talking to and listening to children and are also asynchronously available. Well, and, and kind of to keep on that same track, but take you a little bit in a different direction because of something you just recently posted on Twitter. You were talking about, <laughs> you posted something that I, I thought was really interesting and I, I want to read it specifically here. You said, it's a real, this is a really hard one, both as parent and, and educator. I get to see my kids in school all day long and I'm so tempted to jump in and chat or ask questions, but I'm not sure if their teachers are open to it. Has anyone just reached to parents uh, you know are in the house to ask them to jump into the math discussion or just join the class, right? And so I thought this was really interesting because first of all, my wife and I, you know, my wife is an early childhood educator and, you know, myself being in education, we, you know, particularly early on when everybody kind of had to make the quick transition, we kind of found ourselves in the same position. We were like, I would like to, you know, see what's going on here or, or whatnot. And, um, but I think it also kind of goes to another interesting point, which is parent engagement in the education mm-hmm. process, right? Mm-hmm. And we actually are in a unique position right now where it really could happen, mm-hmm. even organically, but it's not, it's still not necessarily a part of how things are done. So, you know, teachers may not either want to do it or know how to do it, or, you know, they may not want to know how there's a lot of potential challenges and and, and barriers there I would like for you to expand on that a little bit more and then even talk a little bit about how teachers might be able to engage parents into the education process particularly in an area like math where that's a unique uh, animal in and of itself yeah, thanks, Joel. Thanks for, thanks for checking out my tweets. <laughs> um, <laughs> Do my research. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, I mean, this is, this was, I was actually part of a chat. So, shout out to Ohio Council of Teachers of Math. They, they had a Twitter chat specifically on engaging and, and working with parents. And I think this is something that is every teacher is, is asking right now, right? How mm-hmm. do I engage my students, right? And, and I think that the easiest reaction is to do the things that we, you know, we as teachers and educators have done all, all along. We can, we can maybe try to do like conferences so I can meet with my teacher, right? I can send out a newsletter. I can engage in emails, you know, weekly emails that I'm sending out and maybe get some responses there. Mm-hmm. All these things, you know, pre- presume the old model of education, in which, right, I, I send my kids to school. I don't see them all day. They come home. I ask them questions about it. But I'm completely reliant on the teacher to tell me what's going on or any other adult in their classroom, right? We do have a unique opportunity here, you know, I mean, not everyone has the luxury of being at home and and sort of Mm -hmm. being there with their kids while they're in online school. But I think a lot of people do, right? And a lot of people are finding that they can actually peek into what their kids are doing. And I, you know, I'm not sure, and there's probably some districts and some teachers who have been doing this a lot, but I feel bad because, you know, I don't, I, as, as someone who works in education, I am always hesitant to jump in to what my kids are doing. I don't want to usurp the power and the agency that the teachers have. But at the same time, I realize that like there are so many parents there who would love an opportunity to play a game with their kid. That's part of their learning experience, right? That would love an opportunity to jump in. And, you know, I'm seeing like a lot of kids doing Flipgrid conversations or other things like, you know, it would be, it would be really valuable if the kid would say, 
you know, I want, I'm going to interview my grandpa right now. I want to interview my aunts. And this is, this is my interaction that I'm going to share with, with the classroom right now. And then, you know, suddenly schooling moves from this environment where it's controlled space in, in one classroom in a school to now really em embodying our full lives, right? The household I'm in, the people that I see on my everyday, right? And they're now part of my educational community. I, I'm not really sure how to do this. I think this requires a massive paradigm shift in the, in, in the way that our schools really think about connecting to, to students. But I will say this is not new, right? Like this way of educating that connects to children's families and brings in the adults, you know, to sort of be, uh, to, to see them as, as, as partners in education, right? Is actually a part of almost every educational, every non European educational system that's existed, right? If we look back at the ways that, you know, like here in the United States, right, a lot of indigenous Native American education is, was always very much based on, you know, elders connecting with small groups of students, and then different elders would represent different sorts of expertises that they could learn from and grow from, right? Apprenticeship models in which you would just, you know, someone would go hang out with someone for a while because they could learn something from them, right? Mm -hmm. And so if, we, if, if, if we're serious that we actually have this ability to actually now embrace ways of learning, right, that are separate from this industrial revolution model that permeates our systems today, that's very much based on these, you know, Eurocentric standards of testing kids and assessing mm -hmm. kids and preparing only certain kids for college, then I think we can actually do something real here. Mm. That's very, it's really just interesting too, because we just had a conversation with uh, Kyle, Strickland, Kyle Strickland yesterday out of uh, the Kuhn Institute. And a lot of yeah. we talked, a lot of, uh, discussion we talked about was, you know, um, investment, not only, you know, from, you know, mentors, your own personal investment, but also, you know, just, you know, community investment as well, too. And, you know, one of the things that um, I think just been a learning experience, you know, just even with this podcast was, you know, having students, you know, basically, you know, help run the show, the entire show mm -hmm. and doing it virtually, but also doing it where, you know, half are here domestically, mm -hmm. half are also internationally. And so there's, you know, consideration, you know, on both ends where they're, you know, they're putting an investment in, you know, up at 12, you know, at, at midnight, you know, depending mm -hmm. on the different time zones yeah. of, you know, wanting to, you know, help and assist and improve, you know, their own understanding of not only technology, but learning and educating others. Mm -hmm. So can, can you just explain a little bit if, you know, are any strategies uh, for educators out there who are going into uh, th this year? about, you know, keeping the interaction going? Because I, I know it's, it's a little bit different you know, in this yeah. time. Yeah, I don't, I don't that's, a, that's, that's a question that I think that we're all asking, Brendan, is how, is how do you keep the interaction going, you know, especially, you know, especially for new teachers, young teachers, right? right? I, I, think, I think the question is not how do you sort of establish engagement, mm -hmm. but, but rather how do you analyze the ways that you engage with the world and then create those systems already in the classroom? Like, I learn a lot from listening to my own undergraduates and master's students. Like, for instance, I have kind of heard of this thing called Discord, but I don't, you know, I don't, I don't, I don't stream or I don't, I don't Twitch, so I don't, I don't really know what that is. But watching mm -hmm. my undergraduates tell me about it and show me how it works has blown my mind. And I'm like, there is some real interaction and engagement going on here. Mm -hmm. And there's amazing learning where people are coming together and sharing memes and sharing funny stuff, but also engaging in serious talk, building off of each other's ideas. And so I think that we're living, we're living in this world now in which especially many of our younger teachers or people entering the classroom now, they don't, they don't have to act like they need to know, they need to learn everything new. They're, they're growing up in a world in which they've already been doing a lot of amazing online interactions their whole lives. What can they share and bring into the classrooms from the ways they interact, right? 
it's probably going to look very different for you know, those of us from older generations, right? Like, mm-hmm. okay, so you're going to teach your class, you know, like playing Fortnite together. I, I, I don't know, right? But there, there are spaces there in which kids are actually building communities, right? Kids are actually interacting and, and, and getting the best out of each other somehow. Right? I think where I want to get into is what I believe is kind of the meat and potatoes of what what you do is the storytelling piece mm-hmm. of, of mm-hmm. education, right? Because, you know, like you were saying, you don't do Twitch or any of those kind of things, but it's how your undergraduate students are explaining it to you, the stories mm-hmm. that they're, you're, they're telling you about mm-hmm. that experience that's mm-hmm. kind of engaging. And mm-hmm. so we want to get students to be able to learn how to do that effectively and how mm-hmm. and where it can happen. So you're you're part of the 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 faculty that are at the um, the uh, the steam factory mm-hmm. OSU, and I've I've had opportunity to go to there a couple of times actually. I take a group of students each time, and a lot of that was related around you know the storytelling and kind of that level of engagement into the content. And the way that we did it when we took students there was this is a component of a longer series that's going to help you to transition into preparing for a career. Mm-hmm. Can you talk about how important it is to couple STEM slash STEAM and, and storytelling and so that now you're in a better situation as a student for your, the, your career? Mm-hmm. How storytelling and understanding the, the content in that way so that you'll be able to tell a story, how that also then translates into a career for yourself. Yeah, absolutely. That, so, so thanks. Thanks for getting to, to my current work. So I, I've been, I've really just started investigating heavily this, this idea that I call digital math storytelling. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it goes back to this idea of digital storytelling that's been around for about, you know, 30 years now. The idea of just creating, you know, videos based on the stories that we want to tell. Right. But the stories are very different than just making like a Flipgrid video or making an explanation. The stories have to be real. They have to be personal stories in which we show growth, in which we, we, we share about our evolution. And we, and we really reveal a part of ourselves that we might not have even known about ourselves. Right? It's, 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 it's a fairly therapeutic exercise. For me, the, the, the problem with the way math and STEM in general, but you know, math in particular, is situated and taught in the United States, is that it is very much about focusing on whether you're smart or not and on, you know, sorting kids into different tracks, yeah. right? It's, it's not really about getting everyone to learn mathematics well, right? That's what it should be, right? It should be about, like, I, when, you know, when I graduate from high school, I now know how to see injustice around me because I have extremely high quantitative literacy skills. I can read through a report and see that they're hiding numbers, right? Mm-hmm. I can... I can go into a place and realize that all of these, all of these discounts that they're advertising are actually mm-hmm. fake, right? I have this ability to be critical in my understanding of numbers and patterns, but mm-hmm. that's actually not what we do, right? We actually just, you know, get students to, to learn how to do well in tests, to learn how to regurgitate yep. mathematical facts and formulas quickly so that they can move on to the next thing, which is usually college and, and something else. And often, you know, oftentimes many students say that they never get it, like, like math students I work with, so they never actually got to do math until they got to college. They never really got to engage in problem solving and numerical thinking. Mm-hmm. So why is that, right? And so the work that I focus on is on you know, we are all natural storytellers. I mean, human beings, we are a storytelling being. The, the way that histories 
are, are, are shared from generation to generation is through stories, not through like a list of rules, right? But through stories, right? The ways we learn about our families, the way we learn about peoples is through stories, right? You know, this is my fascination with media and film and television is the stories are compelling to us. When a story is good, it sits in our head and becomes a part of how we view the world forever. And so how do we get kids to realize that there are stories in their lives that are deeply mathematical? I'll, I'll give you an example. In my pilot study last year, I gave a bunch of fourth graders some iPads and I said, let's, let's, let's work on making some math stories of our lives. One of the kids, you know, went and made a story about herself making some biscuits and said, I'm, you know, when I make biscuits, I, I pour flour, I pour half a cup flour and then, you know, a little bit of water and this and put some baking soda in there. And she was following the recipe and she made this video that just showed her measuring and making biscuits. And I remember we, we screened it we with a small group and one of the parents of one of the other kids was there and said, I don't believe that. I don't, I don't believe your video. <laughs> and I was like, that's a pretty harsh thing to say to a fourth grader, right? And so the little girl was like, what do you mean? She goes, I've been in your kitchen. I've been in your kitchen and I've never seen a single measuring cup come out ever. I know that your mom does not measure when she, when she cooks. I've been there, I've seen it. So why are you pretending like you do this, right? And, she, and the little girl said, you're right. And you, you want to make a math video. I made one about measuring, but I, you know, I, like when we cook at home, we don't measure, right? We just, we, we, we pull recipes out, you know, based on what we learned before. And so she went home and they made another video. And this video was about her Sunday supper. Her, her two aunts and their families come over and they, they had, they, she shared that they have a tradition of whenever they can on Sunday nights, three families come together and they have dinner together. And so she is in the kitchen with her mom and her two aunts and they made seven dishes in about an hour and a half and they all came out hot and ready at the same time. And so the video was now about her mom saying, okay, let's get the rice going. Okay, get the vegetables going, get the water boiling, right? You know, let's preheat the oven. And this delicate dance of like, you know, vegetables being pulled out, things being chopped, things being cleaned, all moving around. And then the mom and the two aunts just having the time of their lives, laughing, having fun, sharing stories, while all engaged in checking the times, checking temperatures, making sure everything is ready, everything tastes good, the proportions are right. And then, at, you know, I think it was like seven o'clock, boom, all the food is piping hot and ready, ready to eat. Mm-hmm. And then when, you know, and I, I remember when I watched this video, I was like, this is amazing. And then when that, that fourth grader showed it to the class, suddenly, you know, the, the students are able to see the intricate mathematical detail that the mom and the aunts are doing. And then one of the kids even said, you know, I never, I never thought of your mom as a math person before. And it's because, <laughs> right, like her mom had never been situated that way, right? Her mom is, you know, this woman in the community, but is never seen as a math person. And then suddenly with this form of storytelling, the little girl is able to show, hey, we do a ton of math in our household. It might not look like the math that we see on the worksheets, but this path is actually really intricate and difficult. And we do it and it doesn't look hard because we're having fun. It's part of our traditions. And the people who are doing it, I mean, these were all women of color in the video, right? Mm-hmm. We're doing math. And I think for many of the kids in, in that room, they had never seen a woman of color doing math before. Like, honestly. For the, so that's the work that I'm doing now, right? The power in engaging in a story of mathematics happening in our own community and our own environments. I think, you know, it has the potential to transform not only that little girl, but the, all, the, all the kids in the classroom who are part of that community who watched that happen. You know, that, I mean, that's amazing. That's an amazing story. And translating that then to... Now, not only is math not as far away as mm-hmm. the current education system makes it seem, but then mm-hmm. now it's, it's so inherent and apparent to me that now mm-hmm. it's not a barrier 
to my career outlook, right? Mm-hmm. So the things that I might want to do going forward. So if I want to go and be, you know, a, a engineer slash a media major like yourself, <laughs> you know, like all of those things are on the table. And, and so yeah. I think that's, that's an interesting way of going about it. But one of the things I, I wanted to, to, to get your perspective on too is the, are there ways that storytelling impacts the workplace, right? Because mm-hmm. we hear, you're starting to hear more and more about that, right? That, you know, that's how you engage people. That's how you kind of get people all on the same page and so on mm-hmm. and so forth. And it sounds like this is what you're doing in the, in the classroom, in the mm-hmm. K-12 classroom, but then it's also happening in the, in the mm-hmm. real world, in the workplace, there's at some point, you know, we want to see the overlap to say, yeah. doing it here because it's going to be useful here as well. So do you have any, any, any insight into how that connection may work? Yeah, that's, that's, I, mean, I actually never thought about this question before. You know, my, my, my focus has always been on, on, on children, right? on children yeah. and teachers. No. I mean, I, I would just off the cuff, I think that you know, anyone who's ever been engaged in a true story circle where you're sharing stories um, mm-hmm. in, in, you know, maybe with a small group of people and then you're listening to the way they react to the stories and then mm-hmm. you're sort of taking up feedback, right? And this can come in many ways, right? Like when you're in that moment, you create bonds with those people that are deep, right? Because you have to be mm-hmm. vulnerable because you're sharing, yeah. you know? And it's, it's really hard to do that, you know, with people who you don't trust, right? And so maybe there's some way of team building, of creating camaraderie in the workplace, you know, when there's formal mechanisms for sitting together and sharing stories, right? Mm-hmm. And then, and then, you know, making sure that as we share the stories, we're, you know, we're, we're learning about each other, or you know, we create systems in which we're, you know, we don't judge or laugh, and you know, our preconceived notions of who that person is sort of disappear, right? And we actually get to know who they are on the inside. So, so as we start to wrap up here a little bit. One thing we always like to ask, you know, our guests that, that come on at the end here is, um, as if I'm an educator, how can I get connected to, you know, some of the work that you're doing, and what are some of the different opportunities to engage, you know, with some of the work that you're doing as well too, especially during times like this and going moving forward. Yeah, yeah, that's that's always the hardest part, right? Is is the roles that we the, the play. So, Brendan, I, I I appreciate the question. How do how do you get in touch? You know, I think we're all overwhelmed right now. I know I am. I know that my inbox is so, there's, there's so many emails that I'm not replying to. I, I honestly think that, you know, and, and, and even social media, I think I've, I've come and gone from. But I, I think that right now the easiest way to get in touch with me, honestly, is through Twitter. And it's, and it's only because that's a mechanism in which, you know, like even if I'm not engaged fully, like at least I'll check it every now and then. Versus, you know, I, I think the hard part right now with we, we're not going to those places to check that are flooded with the sort of work that is really hard to do in, during the pandemic, such as, mm-hmm. you know, respond to emails, right? It's like, it's endless. <laughs> or, 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 right, yes. like even, um, you know, when people say they want to meet up and talk, right? And then, like, I, I hate to say this, right? People say they want to meet up and talk, and then they say, oh, and let me hit you up with a Zoom link. It's like, oh, really? Okay, it's going to be another one of these conversations. <laughs> <laughs> because, because, yeah, because we're all semi, you know, we're all Zoom fatigued, right? Or we're all right. sort of fatigued of this way of interacting, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I would much rather jump on the phone with someone or, you know, uh, you know, jump in a text message uh, dialogue with someone because those are more authentic ways of connecting, right? And I, and I think the hard part is 
our mechan like for me, the mechanisms I used to have to sort of filter out, right? Like which conversations are the ones I want to engage in. Those are, those are really hard to navigate <laughs> right now. Mm -hmm. right? And, and I think uh, along those same lines, if I'm a student, if I'm a middle school student, high school mm -hmm. student, I'm interested in the work that you're doing around, you know, the, the confluence of, of, of storytelling and math and what's going on with the steam factory or mm -hmm. with the, uh, with the web series and so on and so forth. Where are the places where I can connect with that work and how can I even consider how I get involved or apply it? You know, how, what would your, your thoughts on that be? So I, I think, I think it, it depends on who you are, right? I think mm -hmm. that we live in a world now where young people have a lot of agency that they, they, can, they can make a lot of noise quickly, right? And mm -hmm. I hate to say this, right? But like, you know, if you're a young person who's, who's interested in a lot of this work and you have access to it, you can go online, you can read through things, right? Mm -hmm. I like the things that I pay attention to are when young people are making really good YouTube videos and they're making good short YouTube videos that are deep and sort of explaining things, not the YouTube videos so that they can pick up ads, right. And pick up more subscribers. Right. right? But you know, where they're really articulating and explaining the things that they're thinking about, or they're responding to other people, you know, using, using videos, a platform. I mm -hmm. think that that actually cuts through a lot of the noise for me. Um, I, I, I think that when, when kids are actually creating blog, I mean, I hate to say this, right, but it goes back to this old form of communication called the blog, right, from like 15 years. <laughs> I, I, I think that when people are creating thoughtful, thoughtful articles, you know, whether it's medium.com or, you know, some other form, mm -hmm. and they're writing things deeply, but they're also using visual, visual narratives to explain their thinking, like, that's really good. Right. It, it, like, mm -hmm, it sort mm -hmm. of cuts through because it's no right. longer just an, just a news article or clickbait. It's, it's a well thought out piece where they're, they're really trying to articulate and, and think through things. I think for, for young people trying to get people to pay attention to them, I think that's really important. Right. Mm -hmm. And I think that's where we get into this idea of critical media skills, right. Being able to sort of write and produce content well, which I have a lot of hope of. I think that like, I think your podcast and other things are really focusing on how good we are at doing that right now for mm -hmm. some, some young people. I think in, in terms of learning how to get connected to all the work going on, I'm not really sure. I mean, I have a website that I, that is basically my own work, but I, I, you know, I, I barely maintain it myself. So it's not great. I think OSU does a great job of highlighting a lot of the academic work I do. Right. So like, mm -hmm. you know, you can, you can search me and my faculty page and the steam factory does a good job of putting our work out there. I mean, this is the part that's challenging, right? Is mm -hmm. right. in order, to, in order to really, put yourself out there in ways where all of your work is accessible really requires, you know, a lot of savvy and time that, that many of us mm. don't have. Right? <laughs> right. That, that is true. Yes. That's definitely true. Yeah. I will say though, your blog on, on your, on your website. I love it. Thanks. Thank you. Just reading through that as well. So, well, Dr. Chow, we want to thank you for joining us. Really great conversation. Really lively conversation for us and, you know, synthesizes a lot of things that we've discussed with other people. I think it's just really interesting to connect the dots on two things people would consider to be desperate mm -hmm. concepts, right? Storytelling and math mm -hmm. and, mm -hmm. you know, all these kind. Of, and I'm glad that you're pulling those things together to help people, you know, find a, a way to either learn or express or both. And uh, so we appreciate you uh, being with us. And, and look forward to being able to bring you back as you're 
moving things again. You've seen it. You've seen it progress quick. So by the time we bring you back, you'll be a full <laughs> professor and then, <laughs> then dean, and then you know. So, so, so I went. For, I went for the movie, <laughs> the web series. Right there you go. <laughs> That's it. Yep. So. <laughs> So again, thank you again, and uh, we look forward to talking to you again. Cool. Yeah. Thanks, Brandon. Thanks, Joel. Thank you very much, Liz, right. for having me. And and shout out all the great work that you that you and the rest of the ODE team are constantly pushing. I love it. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Digital from Day One podcast. Make sure to visit our website at go.osu.edu forward slash digital day one. That's the number one where you can find out how to subscribe, more information about our guests, and more information about our team. As always, we love to know what you think. Use the feedback form on the website or shoot us an email at digitalfromday1 at osu.edu. The one is actually spelled out here. Or simply give us a rating on iTunes. And we'd appreciate if you tell a friend about our little show here too. There's more to come from our guests in this episode, so be on the lookout for that. I'm Joel Nelson, along with Brendan Dickerson, and let's continue to make the connections to Opportunity Stronger. Until next time, everybody.